Gaming and BS episode 106. Arrgh. Welcome to welcome to Gaming and BS, episode one hundred and six, mateys. I'm one of your hosts, Sean. Just one one talk like like a pirate day, and the whole show won't tell. And I'm Brett. I'm here to suffer through this with the rest of you. Welcome, Swab. <laughs> nice. <clears throat> so when I played Seven C with John Wick, just as a quick aside, I mistakenly said at one point I got elected ship's captain, which. I, I learned on a pirate ship, you never openly say at a gaming table, look, I don't want to be in charge here because they will immediately vote you in charge. And um, I turned to one of the players. I said, okay, take the take the prisoner slash stowaway person we just rescued. Take him in the basement. And they looked at me and I'm like, I mean, the the guy goes, you mean the hull, don't you, sir? I said, yes, yes, I do. Take him down below to the hull in the thing with the brig stuff there. Yeah, take him to a hold somewhere. Yeah, my uh, my sailor talk. She weren't so good at the time. I did get to use run out the guns though, so that was fun. Alright, let's move on to announcements, shall we? Let's do it. <laughs> oh, good lord! So evercon.org, uh, we've got some events starting to populate. We've got some of our special uh, special guest stuff showing up there. The stuff with Ken Height and uh, <clears throat> and folks like that starting to pop up there. Um, got a number of different local folks that are going to be putting on some really cool games. We're looking, hopefully, um, I got Kev Thulu and uh, Austin will be stepping up to help us run some games on demand fun there as well. So hopefully we got some uh, BSers in the central Wisconsin area or who are willing to come to the center of all that is gaming in Wisconsin and uh, hang out with us and start your new year off. Right. So go out there, evercon.org, take a look. Any questions? Hey, hit me up in the, uh, in any of our ways to get all of us gaming BS said, uh, Facebook page, email us on Evercount. You want to talk to me personally? I'll be happy to sing the praises. Sean, we have a game hole, dude. That's like <clears throat> shit. It's almost October, man. That means so, game hole is like practically a month away. It's like next month. I know. I Holy know. Shit. I have a deep <laughs> shit, man. I got to get my uh, <clears throat> gauge of games prepped. Yeah, a little bit. See, lucky for me, I just wing it. So I'll just sit out and say, So, what do y'all want to do? <laughs> You're all together. You're all together. And go. And go. Actually, I've got some but I've got some new buttons I need to get made for us and maybe a different banner. Shit, I got to get off my ass and get that done. Yeah, what the hell, man? But speaking of banners, we've got people running under our banner and our bonus BS episodes are covering the game masters who are interested in doing a little blurb out there. Is that true? Yes, yes. What about the what, huh? Oh my God, you're not even paying attention to me, are you? I'm posting a link to the show. <laughs> awesome. So, uh, bonus BS. Yes, bonus um, BS. We had one. Yeah. Yeah. Monday. So, keep going out there. We've got um, any other game masters who are running for us who haven't uh, recorded a blurb. If it's something you're interested in, obviously not a requirement. But if you'd like to record a little something about your game, uh, get hold of Sean and or I, and we'll get you hooked up and we'll put it out there in a bonus BS episode. Jason, Jason Hobbs Hobbs, we're talking to you, dude. And maybe Nick if he, wants, if he wants to, but he doesn't have to. Oh, I did hear that Jen Brinkman and some of uh, those Sanctum Sicorum Dungeon Crow Classics hardcore dudes are coming to Game Hole this year. So that That's the cool. word. That's the word. It'll be great to see Jen again. She's fun. She's a hoot. 
dungeon crawl classics. Any other announcements, man? No. All right, let's carry on. Random encounter. All right, got a few emails this week. Shall I start off? You, if you'd like, Brett. Uh, I shall. Um, hey, guys, thanks for picking up the topic of PC safe zones. I enjoyed it a lot and took away some new ideas. Currently, I'm getting ready to restart a campaign after summer off. I've been previously done some scouting and um, uh, rescuing. The party is going to be part of a large effort to cleanse the dreaded uh, slaver scum from the face of the land. The problem is that the dreaded slaver scum seem to have an army. I'm working ways to incorporate small scenes of individual daring do into a larger picture of the running battle. I'm considering something akin to the 4E skill challenges where if whereby if the party succeeds X times before failing Y times, the good guys will claim the victory. Each success will get them a related narration of battle going well, and the failure will bring sorrow to their hearts as they watch their beloved NPCs fall to the sword. These mini scenes will be run uh, using standard rules, though, not skill challenge rules. Uh, they would be like sneaking into the enemy's castle to open up the gates, removing a two-headed giant from the field of battle so the regular troops can have a chance, relaying messages through orc-filled territory, while I have bits and pieces of the concept starting to congeal, I'd love to hear any BS BS um, uh, might have to contribute to the topic. Closing the circle, so to speak, I should mention that the party is doing all this to uh, preserve their abode and the village where it lies. Failure could be a disaster. Cheers, says Edwin. So that's pretty cool. I like that idea. Yeah. Kind of a large running battle and then different ways to narrate it without going into excruciating like uh, Warhammer fantasy battle detail of die rolling and so on. Interesting. I have to noodle on this one. Yeah, I would. <clears throat> I would. Edwin. Ed. Mr. E. I would set up like four or five. Maybe one per character. And then set the appropriate skill like focus almost as if you could have one based around each, each player character for their strength. So maybe if it's a fighter, obviously it'll be fighter oriented. If it's, so if a thief has some roguey stuff to do, right. Sneaky scouty, he succeeds. Then the party gets the upper hand on the next encounter. Or if he fails, he screws up bad Intel comes back and blam, an entire regiment is destroyed. Okay. Right, right, and then you you have those. Each one have their own little focus. Maybe they impact each others. Maybe they don't impact each others, but they impact the overall scheme of things. So yes, going to what you are go going towards, Edwin is uh, maybe if there's a party of five, if you get three, then overall there is success. A success. But because of the two failures, maybe there's repercussions behind that. Maybe, you know, ideas would be more losses uh, in, occurred, incurred, or uh, yeah, maybe more casualties. Yeah. What else? I mean, maybe you lose a front. Yeah. I mean, there's. <clears throat> Battles are battles like that are crazy because you can. There's so many different things you can win, lose. We can take a right. hill, uh, lose the hill. The keep can collapse. 
Um, you can have a crazy one-on-one battle with your party versus the massive two-headed giant. And doing that raises the morale, and <clears throat> they win a decisive victory, and crush, they're, they're able to crush forward and do something amazing. So, uh, interesting. Okay. Hmm. I have to think about this one a little bit more. There's, I've done a behind the enemy lines thing before where uh, next thing you know, the party ended up behind this horrible undead uh, army and they end up you know, having to go sneak their way behind the lines and find the solution to the problem. And sneaking through enemy territory is a lot different than a large pitched army battle type of thing. So this is interesting. Yeah. This is interesting. Yeah, yeah. I don't yeah. recall the last time I've done something like this. It's been a while. Good stuff. You have to let us know how it goes, Ed. Yes, absolutely. And if anybody else out there has an idea or if they've done something like this before, hey, man, pitch in. Get on that uh, G Plus community or write us and let us know how you've done it. And well, we will share your wisdom. Over to you, sir. Arr, Michael Drescher emails us. Don't do the whole song. Don't do the whole song like that. <laughs> Brett. <laughs> You mentioned those damned encumbrance rules. As I've mentioned prior, I've been working on homebrew rules, <laughs> ye matey, Stop. for D&D to make such overlooked rules. All right, fine. Encumbrance. <laughs> As I mentioned prior, I've been working on homebrew rules for D&D to make such overlooked rules and uh, it overlooked rules, encumbrance, carrying capacity, exhaustion, etc. And I have some updates that you might want to incorporate into your game. My group is currently adoring the encumbrance by way of Shadow of the Demon Lord. It's quick and easy to manage. Characters can carry a number of items equal to their strength score and up to a maximum of twice their strength score with disadvantage on strength and dexterity rolls, and their speed is halved. All items, armor, weapons, gear, no matter how small, are an item slot in our world, as well as every 50 coins. This has led to using the vehicles and draft animals and the importance of dun-dun-da safe houses. I'm still working on making water and rations matter that isn't intrusively difficult to implement. Considering under the D&D exhaustion rules, PCs have to drink more than water skins full of water a day per character. Tedious. I'm thinking of using the Dungeon World or Torchbearer approach, but only time will tell. All that said, I applaud the use of bad reputations to attack the PC safe house. I've always believed that the character's actions should affect the world around them, and it has led to deep, immersive, communal storytelling and role-playing. Example, the party pissed off the cult of Tenebris and went to seek refuge in the elven city in the woods. This is the only settlement of elves, of the elves. The cult follows them, and due to some brash negotiations, they used alchemist fire to burn the city and force to the ground. It was really dramatic. Oh, that's terrible. It was really dramatic. The party trying to simultaneously fight the cultists, put out fires, save citizens, and escape themselves. Ultimately, they got out alive, but very badly burned. The forest no longer exists on the map, and elves are no longer available as a playable race. Oh, <gasps> Genocide by player character. Good lord. 
As far as they are concerned, their brashness has caused the genocide of an entire race. Not to mention the cult of Tenebris now has a massive ash land to perform their dark rituals. Oh, that's horrible. Wow. That's bad. Keep up the good work, we'll guys. Do. We'll hide here and burn their house to the ground. Sorry about that. Oh, boy. Oh, no, Mr. Bill. Exactly. Uh, keep uh, up the good work. Awesome show as always, Michael. Thank you, Mr. Drescher. Oh, and speaking of thanks to uh, Steel223 for the review on the iTunes. Always appreciated. Love a good review. Yeah, I don't Thank know if that's much. Chris Steele or if somebody else is. It could be. You never a, know. Has a similar name as as Iron as that one. That's true. Arr, iron name. Oh. <laughs> All right. <laughs> next up was Chris Angelucci. Dear Sean and Brett. I subscribe to Lovecraft Easy mailing list, and their latest email touches on a new Lamentations of the Flame Princess product that may appeal to Brett. Ooh, you have my attention. Link in the show here. Uh, bringing folk horror and old world mythology to your tabletop with a pale lady, a thousand dead babies. <gasps> it says a thousand dead babies. Ah, I have not mentioned it before, Chris, so thank you very much. This is quite awesome. I am going to have to go check this out. Do it! I think it's about a thousand dead babies before, but maybe that's just, it's happened so often. I don't know. Anyway, interesting. All right. I like it. Yeah. Thanks for writing in everybody. Absolutely. Are we ready? I think so. Let's get into it. What's going on this week, Brett? So, Kev Lovecraft had a little post on his Google Plus stream about magic items and PTs. Yes, yes, yes. Our listeners obviously have some of the best ideas and topics that we steal from and claim them as our own. No, clearly I want to give credit where credit's due. I read this from Kevin. I was uh, kind of debating on a couple different ideas for the today's show. And I'm like, wait a minute, this is really freaking cool because it's... Um, Connected directly to something that just happened in my Avalon game with uh, Chris Nizak and a few other folks. And Kevin. As well as uh, Tom Flanagan and uh, Emily. I'm waiting for the live action movie for that. Ah, that, that'd be fun. So Kevin had put this. It, he basically, it's a link from another. Um, uh, anyway, it's a link to his post in the Google Plus streams, a link to a different thing. Anyway, blah, here's the quote that got me thinking. I wonder how to reveal the properties of such items to players, characters, when they discover them. Spout lore seems like an obvious method, um, a la Dungeon World. But what are some other ways to justify conveying the information? Do players enjoy discovering things by trial and error based on the description and any context available? Talking about magic items, special items, those types of things. I recall back in the day, uh, you pick up a magic item and you'd say, is it magical? And my game master, Eric Schaefer, would say, I don't know. Is it glowing? Yes, it is. Ooh, that's magical. Then we had the common joke, on a scale of 1 to 10, what would it be glowing about a two? Oh, sounds like a plus two sword. He, 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 you know, thinking we're clever little high school kids. Um, and then you he, find he, that ring. just doing that yesterday. What are you talking about? <laughs> Mostly. Yeah. <laughs> you find a magic ring. What does it do? I put it on. Does nothing. I jump up and down. Right. Try I out. leap off something. I try to jump really high. I go without <laughs> food for a day. <laughs> You're just desperately trying to map this thing, which somehow determined as magical to an effect that, you know, so, Sean, 
we've talked about this a little bit with levels of magic and that type of thing, but there's something it's very grognardian is this whole, you find a magic item. Ooh, I've identified as magic. What does it do? Well, it seems to have some necromatic yet enchantment and some abjuration. You're like, uh, okay. It's a dagger. What the fuck do I do with this thing? So Sean, when you, when you're playing, do you have, do you have any of those memories? I guess let's start with there. Do you have any of those memories where you find that magic item? And then you hop around like a fool trying to use this feather quals feather token to figure out what it does or, have you had any, any of those memories? I laugh because I have, Brett, and it isn't wholly dissimilar, but it was a little longer than just yesterday. That a I little had longer than just yesterday? Yes. Yeah. Well, so I have had those. I'm bringing the fun back, man. That's what I'm doing. Bringing fun back. Hey, exactly. Um, now I did in one campaign have a master list of everything that somebody would come across and that I kept track of, right? Okay, so they found an item. And if they didn't identify it, they didn't know what it did. What it did. And uh, I would kind of keep an, you know, track of that. Who has it? What does it do? What page is it, is it on? So when they determine, well, I'm going to try to use it, and they do use it, maybe there's a DC, uh, if it's a DC-based game, to understand how to use it maybe one time or whatever it is and they roll and they flip the trigger and it goes off and works, then great. And then if that's got a charge to it, I mark off the charges. Actually, that's what I did too. If they identified it, but not to the point of knowing how many charges it have left or whatever, I would keep track of that. So when they whipped it out and went, I do this and nothing happens. And it's like, oh, hey. Uh, it's all out of charges. <clears throat> I remember distinctly it being kind of fun to a point to try to, you know, mess around, try to figure out what the sword does. You know, I hack at a shield. Does it cut the shield in half? I try to stick it through a rock. <laughs> what does that do? I, I use this arrow kind of, well, I don't want to waste the arrow. I try to shoot an arrow with this bow or whatever. I throw this rock at something, see if it explodes. There is a point though where the players are like, okay, how long do I have to dance around like a monkey throwing things around until somebody just tells me what the fuck this magic item does? I just see a, monta- a montage, right? A montage. Doot, doot, you know, play the Benny Hill song, whatever, yakety sax. And I'm sure there's a listener out there goes, who, what? What's a Benny Hill? Nice. Yakety sax. Exactly. Google it. So... When you're playing now, Sean, when you're running or playing, do you like, so let's take it from a game master perspective. When players find magic items, I mean, there's mechanical stuff. There's identify spells, there's detect magic and so forth. And there's the, hey, I'll just pick up the sword and uh, wander around, hit stuff with it and say, hey, by the way, this is that sword I picked up that detected magic, Sean. Tell me how much damage I'm doing. Tell me if I get any bonuses on this. Well, there's only a couple, there's like one huge major thing wrong with that whole scenario. Yeah, I don't. Well, give, Sean, give Sean, give me a magic. Items. I don't yeah, give players right. magic items, man. You're right. You're right. So let's <laughs> let's say, were you to do such a crazy thing? Oh, that's that does sound crazy. It does sound crazy. You give GMs give out magic items. That's nuts. I don't know what that's about. It should be something to strive for. Because if you give it to them, then shit, like stuff's over with then. Exactly. All right. So, all right. Hypothetically, I got it. Hypothet- hypothetically speaking. Do you, do you make your players kind of use the mechanics where they can, and then after that, it's just kind of screw around until they figure it out? Or, I mean, is that... 
<sighs> I, I think there's two camps that I can appreciate. One is you just tell them what the hell it is and what it does. After they either spend identify mm-hmm. or whatever it is it takes to figure it out. But they've got to do something. They, there's no, I pick it up, what is it? Oh, that's a wand of wonder. You expect them to expend some sort of a spell resource or something to gain knowledge. Arcana check. Okay. All right. They got to do something. Not just going to tell them. You know, it's not picking up a sword. All right. All well, right. it's not as intuitive as picking up a tool that is, you know, oh, this is a hammer or this is a screwdriver. This screws screws in. Got it. Right. So if they pick up a rod, staff, or wand, that's that's what it is, but none of I mean, could be anything. Could be a stick. That's true. I remember uh, I was at Gen Con ages back. I was at a seminar Eric Wujic gave. Guy wrote TMNT and other strangeness and the Amber Diceless and so on. And uh, he was talking about a D&D game that he had run <clears throat> forever, and the players had encountered a gun. And he described the gun as a series of, like, one long cylinder with another kind of a cylinder-like handle and another series of cylinders with some sort of a protrusion and the way he described it, you know, like, Oh yeah, that, that is a gun. Um, but he he kind of went out of his way to never tell them exactly what it was. Cause like, they wouldn't know what a gun was. Ha ha ha. So right. be uh, obfuscate this, but there is, I have, I honestly, so from my perspective as a game master, I have done the thing like, look, you find depending on the pace of the game, how things are rolling. I rarely, if ever, tell the players, you pick it, oh, it's a plus one sword. Oh, that's a, that's a ring of feather falling. It may have an inscription or may have a thing to it, but I almost, I don't recall the last time I didn't make them spend some sort of a resource, either time, effort, skill checks, spells, something, to figure it out. Even if I didn't have a very clear-cut mechanic, um, or if the identify spell for the game system was a little vague, I still made them do something to uh, to figure it out. I never just gave it to them. Yeah, I think that is uh, similar. I, I don't think I've ever given it to somebody and then back in the day maybe, oh, here, you want a magic missiles, 20 charges, have fun. Exactly. It, usually it's some kind of identify. They got to do some research. And then, you know, if it's an – I mean, even when we did – what is it? The Lost Shrine of Tomashan, which is, I think there's a minor artifact in, if I'm not mistaken. Shot- okay. Hey, spoilers. Um, spoilers. Oh, crap. <laughs> oh, oh man. I just got that. We're just going through like half of it. Um, great. There's an artifact in it. Uh, wah, wah. Um, even then, I think we wrote down all the powers like, okay, this is what it does. Okay. And then just started writing them down in a list. I would never do that now. Remember artifacts in First Ed? Total aside here, in First Ed, D&D, and the Monster Man, it had blanks. All your artifacts had blanks. They could do different things. It depended on what you wanted them to do as a game master. <clears throat> After that second edition and so forth, it was set like the Hand of Vecna does this, the Eye of Vecna does this, or the you know Rod of Lordly Might does this. But First Ed, in the back of the old DMG, it would have it, and it would say blank, 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 blank. And then there's a list of things you could choose from but it was always a little bit different. Everybody's artifact had a little different flavor. I think a lot of that was just, ah, th- there needs to be more danger in that stuff. Well, there's, you talk about this before is the, the wonderment or the, Oh my God, this is really cool. 
Yeah. It's cool until you blow your face off. (laughs) Exactly. Um, there is, there's a level of tediousness though, that can come from letting the players dick around and try to figure it out and jump up and down and do this and do that. And you can kind of feel it when the rest of the group's like, come on, Jesus, Brett, stop doing that. Just put the freaking use the hammer in combat. See what it does. You know, I don't want to be a backbiting hammer. I don't want to be cursed. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Which is always fun. So I think there is, there could be some bookkeeping involved. If people, you don't have a mage, you don't have a cleric, you don't have any spellcaster or a bard who knows shit about this particular blade and you use it in combat and uh, the game master says, okay, how much damage did you do? If I want to be super secret, you roll your D8, add your strength and say, hey, look, I got uh, 15 points of damage. All right, good. And I write down 20. I just don't tell him I wrote down 20 because it's a really cool plus five blade. You know, I just don't tell him that. Well, that's, that's the, yeah. And that's, that's kind bookkeeping of, on my side. Yeah. That's why it's kind of like, I don't want to do that crap. So just here, you metagame it. Here, it's got yep. 20 charges. It's plus two or whatever it is. All right, fine. Yep. Cool. The cool th- I just, I, I think you need to do something to make people get, and this is where we've talked about this before. We had our Bard episode back in the day when uh, Phil and Chris uh, challenged us on the Bards. And if you don't remember what episode that is, you start at one, you work your way forward. So you can fully appreciate and understand the Bard episode. But the, uh, the spout lore concept um, <clears throat> that Kevin's post alluded to is straight out of Dungeon World. I apologize. I can't remember where exactly Kevin had uh, copied the post from us. So I figured that I'll post it. Anyhow, the spout lore concept, uh, Dungeon World, is you can say a thing <clears throat> that's essentially true, right? Oh, this sword was uh, from the Dwarven King Kragnor um, from the Great Iron Mountains. Oh, okay. It allows you to take um, and add, <clears throat> add something interesting to the, to the weapon or to the artifact or whatever it happens to be. And I think the cool part for me when people do the um, – when they're expending the information, they're like researching the blade or doing something, and I say, well – this sword, um, I don't leave. Well, it's a plus one sword, and it was once held by the Prince of Thune and from the county of Trent or whatever. I, I don't do that. I lead with some of the backstory first. I lead with some of the coolness um, up front. So it was a blade that was held by the Prince of Thune, and that's a thing that people, oh, Thune, that, that's, that's a principality that's long been uh, abandoned. That was, you know, the, the great traitors from Thune or whatever the case is. Um, Yes, it was held by the Prince of Thune during the battle in the county of Trent. Oh my gosh, this sounds amazing. And suddenly that plus one sword is a really cool thing because it has provenance. It has history. It has something to tie it to the world. Dungeon Crow Classics talks about this a little bit, right? Your magic items shouldn't just be run of the mill. They should have a connection to something. Even something as quote-unquote paltry as a plus one weapon in a D&D. Adding that flavor to it makes it cool. So what I've often done with my bards especially to give flavor to them when they're trying to do a, a lore spouting, digging into it, or even a mage, someone who does an arcana check and uh, <clears throat> they do some kind of a resource spend arcana check uh, magic or whatever it is. Say they don't roll so well, say they don't quite get it all. I always give them something like that to make it seem like a really cool thing. I think that's fun. You're nodding. You like that? Yeah, man, that's good stuff. So, what about, it, I think where it kind of breaks, though, is when you have the what the old schoolers used to call the Monty Hall campaign, where it's just too much stuff, where you had like bushel baskets full of you know plus one broadswords or whatever your problem was. Um, sometimes having in a high magic game where 
you know, plus one weapons, whatever. You just don't care about those. I mean, I did. I mean, I remember playing like that back in high school and even early college. You just didn't, you didn't bother with copper pieces. You didn't bother with gold. You only picked up platinum and gems because what did you need the rest of that crap for? Oh, it's a plus two sword. I have three of those back home in my safe house. I don't need this anymore. Um, very high, crazy levels. I don't think, I, I don't think 14 year old Sean games yeah. would age very well. No, holy crap. No, dude. I like, found some character <laughs> sheets from back in the day that I that I just kept for nostalgia purposes. Looked at it. Oh my God. This guy's a monster. <laughs> I would never let anybody play this character. This thing's a beast. What how it's only third level. How is this possible? Yeah. Yeah. For those of you that don't know the reference of Monty Hall, because you haven't been around since the late 60s, I think is when it was on TV, it's from Let's, 60, make, 70s, yeah. it's Let's, from make, Let's a make a Deal, and you'd pick what's behind door number one, what's behind door number two, and it would just be stuff. Like, if you picked the wrong door, there was nothing. Or it could be just gobs of craziness, like, you know, a thousand cans of tuna fish or something insane. I don't even remember. <clears throat> I'm pulling it out of my pocket. I have no yeah. idea. I don't even so know. I, I don't even remember the premise of the damn game. <laughs> Neither do I. It's like three doors. Um, I don't know. I think there's there's something interesting though around when there's a certain point though I think that trial and error can be really interesting in a game when they find something oh this is the blade that was held by the prince of thune during the battle of trent is when it was lost oh that's cool looks like a plus one sword okay that's kind of cool and then sometimes you withhold a little something well, they didn't figure it all out they know there's another level of something oh it has an abjuration of, oh that just has to do with the plus one or or something or they've not figured it out. And they're like just trying to use it in combat. They're waving the wand around, trying to figure out what it does when the dragon attacks. Just got, we got nothing left. Let's pull out that wand and see what it does. You guys got a command word on it. We've been terrified to use it. There's something really, it's kind of the, uh, it's very old school OSR grognardy, but there's something that can be really fun depending on the game you're playing to have that trial and error <laughs> just based on different descriptions and thoughts. Like, I think I really think this is a, a uh, you know a wand of magic missiles. I think I just don't want to use it quite yet because I'm not sure. There's something that could be kind of cool about that. You agree or what do you think? I do think that it should be mysterious and wonder uh, wonder filled. Where I that's why I think like DCC comes into play and is really kind of awesome because you know futzing around with magic. Unless it's like high magic and it's more high magic is substituted more for technology in the world like Eberron, I think that uh, crazy stuff can happen. That's another thing I like about 5e with the attunement rules for magic items and such. You can't have – I think basically what that does when I, when I read those and I looked at them like, oh, this is a really good mechanic or concept to help me stop somebody from having, you know – six orbs of disintegration and seven of this and 18 of that, you know, it, you don't have the capacity um, or it takes time. Again, it's a resource spend. You've got to do something to earn the ability to utilize this item or whatever it is. And I think it even goes beyond magic items. <laughs> See, when you, when you're playing an investigative game, whether call Cthulhu or a horror game or any investigative style game, people are going to find stuff and they're not going to know what to do with it. And a lot of times in those games, you don't have the luxury of a um, of a identify spell or <laughs> something. You're, you're taking stuff like in the trailer Cthulhu game. You guys found this really weird black oily crap. 
And you're like, okay, I know a guy who works in the morgue. Maybe he knows something. And you're kind of desperately trying to figure out what it is. And that makes the stuff not only in my, my hope is it makes it a little eerie and creepy and a little more terrifying. No one can figure out what it is. It looks like it's alive. It's mutating, causing problems. Um, but in those types of stories that we're, that we're telling at the table, those types of things, that trial and error, the whole slowly unraveling and pulling clues together and figuring out what this thing does. That's part of the entire game. It's nothing as mundane as, Oh, I found a, I found a magic sword in this dungeon. I wonder what it is. And then it happens to be from the Prince of Thune. Great. That's a, that's a neat little aside. Maybe it'll come into something later. The whole concept around this game I'm running is there stuff that needs to be unraveled and there's items or poisons or liquids or something that you have to tear apart. And I think in those types of games, the, the discovering and the sorting things out, that is, I mean, that's part of the fun for those types of games. It's, and it shouldn't be as simple as, oh, I took it to a sage and the sage slash librarian slash doctor goes, oh, this is the, the blood of Tsathagua and that's easy to figure, you know, it, it shouldn't be that simple. Well, I think it depends on the feel you're going for. That's a good point. Yeah, if you want it to be mysterious, then i.e. should be mysterious. If you want it to be offhanded, like, oh, that's the uh, blood of uh, that's the blood of a die. You know, that, that those are tears of a dying angel. Of course, that's what that is. Yeah, okay. great, something rare. Um, okay. Maybe you're not going to be able to figure it out when you're romping around the wilderness. Maybe you got to get to a library, and maybe it's a specific library. Like, talk about. Hey, talking about driving the train. Here's a great magic item. Y'all can't use it until you get to this library. You got to go to this <laughs> library. You cannot go to any other library. Talk about how it looks like you guys, if you want to use that thing, you're going to have to head over to here. Well, what's there? Well, that's Blind Simon, master of ancient lore. You don't talk to Blind Simon. You can't get shit. Ah, fine. We're going to Blind Simon's library. See how easy it is, Brett, to just move things along within the D&D realm? <laughs> Without you don't even have to railroad them. You just you put things in front of them that it, they they always have a choice, Brett. Get on the train or get off the train. That's right. They think they <laughs> you know you get a choice. You can go and figure it out in the uh, great library of Sharn because it's oh, that's the, where the one tome that may actually have this. You can go to other libraries, but you know. You're not going to find what you're looking for in those other libraries, or you could so even do really it. Cool. Could even do it and then realize, yeah, the answer is not enough. there. You got to go to the great library. There you go. See, that's cool when it gets it's big stuff, right? Those investigative games, which is an artifact level thing. It's it's an eye from a horrible lich. You're like, oh, I wonder if this comes off of Ekna, and you don't, you know, or whatever it is, and you're poking around trying to figure that out. I think though, there is you can still have some of that fun with the minor items, the the smaller spells or weird things in a Call of Cthulhu style game where you feel like, oh, this is um, this looks like a ritualistic dagger. Whether it's magical or not, you're like, okay, at least I know what it's used for. It's used for ritualistically, you know, slaying goats and you know, parting their entrails for some weird scrying thing based on what this cult is doing. Okay, um, maybe we'll hang on to that. Might be handy later on, or or whatever the case is. I think even if you don't do the whole these this item is big. You need to go to a specific library in Sharn. You need to do something quest-worthy to uncover what this is, which is a great, uh, or I should say almost a classic kickstart to a campaign or a, a next phase of a story. 
I think even having the small components, you know, you can do a piece where if you want to make your, the NPCs come alive, someone sees your character and walks up and touches you and says, you know, sir, is that the blade from the Prince of Thune? And you're like, what is that really? Is that, where did you get that from? Some antiquarian spots you, um, it, <clears throat> more flavor to the, to the setting, more flavor to the story. I think it can be really cool. Yeah, and then you start throwing people at it that need to recover that thing because they're maybe the the guardians of whatever, and they that's in the wrong hands. It belongs in a museum. Exactly. God damn it, it belongs in a museum. So do you. Um, Indiana Jones quote. Spoiler. Um, anyhow, the where the hell am I going with this? So I like the cool thing about the spouting lore or figuring out something a little special about the magic item, whatever it is, it adds provenance. And then the characters have pride and ownership and they like this thing. It's a magical ritualistic dagger. They took from this cult where they figured out what the blood of Tathagawa is, or they figured out how to stop the great evil sun God or whatever they're worried about. Um, some of those extra bits and pieces, the blade from the Prince of Thune, it's not that big a deal. It was just a throw off. But if the character, the player grabs onto that and says, you know what? My character's from the County of Trent, and I think I would know a little bit about this. And he pokes you, and he says, hey, what about this? You know, Angela says, yeah, that's right. You know, I'm from, my family was involved in that war, too. And next thing you know, Sean and Angela are talking about, hey, what do we do? How do we do this? And by picking up those pieces, if the players have found something that's interesting, you can build a, a campaign or a side quest or a mini story all around this silly little castaway idea you had for the broadsword of the Prince of Thune. It's only a plus one weapon as far in, in D&D parlance, but it suddenly becomes this really cool thing and a tie to something. And maybe it has to do with the fact that that blade without the blade, the prince could never um, attain the throne because it's required for some crazy ritual or whatever. You had none of these ideas beforehand, but the players are feeding you all this great stuff. And by having them, come through and figure out information and, and justify their like, Hey, I'm really interested in this. I'm, I'm digging into a library. I'm casting spells and figuring this stuff out. They get these cool rewards that come from all that expenditure of their resources. But Sean doesn't give away magic items. So this is all hypothetical. That's right. In, in Brett's game, uh, if you want to have fun in Brett's game, snooze fest, Nice. Obviously, it takes place with some guy in the Prince of Thune. <laughs> Maybe it does. Or Thune. Thune is a theme here. Could be. Uh yeah. Do you do, so when when you run the, oh, I should say, let's let's look at it from a player's perspective. Do you like having to mess around and figure out what all the magic items are, or, or do you just prefer the hey, can I just roll and identify here and give me the goddamn answer? Oh man. You know, I'm torn on that sometimes. I really am. There's times yeah. where most, I think most of the times I just err on the side of here it is. This is what it does. Look it up in the PHB. Congratulations. It's just as easier to manage. You know, most players are going to want to use it. I think it just comes in from the the days when growing up was just, we knew what it was. Although well, as a player, as a player though, that, that that's a game master perspective. If you're playing in my D and D game, how do you do? You want me to just give you that stuff after a simple identify spell, or do you want to jump off rocks and try to punch trees with this ring and hope <laughs> it's a ring of the ram or something? <laughs> I don't even know if I'd play that out it, unless I was really like um, bored. 
Yeah, if I was bored <laughs> and just, I don't know, I had a lot of coffee one night before I wanted to play and wanted to find out what silliness you would come up with to figure out what this thing does. <laughs> just see how it would work. Maybe. I don't know. But otherwise, uh, there is a, I mean, there's always kind of a campaign that I have in mind where I would like to get nice and dirty and gritty, like encumbrance mm-hmm. kind of matters because you're going to run into those issues, right? It becomes a story plot device or with the the magic item, it's again, you can figure it out and you can try, or it, it may blow up in your face or, or you think it may blow up in your face because you had that happen once before. And that's why your character doesn't have a nose. Um, or going to the great library because that's the place they need to go to actually find out what the thing is. So it can be driven just like in a lot of things in D&D. I think we hand wave a lot of stuff that you can actually drive. Story. Story. Yeah. Yeah. I think some of it comes down to, we, we joked about the Monty Hall thing, but some of it comes down to volume of stuff. One of the reasons why in a, I'll pick on the trailer Cthulhu game. That Sean and I are, are I'm running for Sean and and, and the guys. Um, <clears throat> the reason why a couple different bits and pieces in there are very in, interesting, or you want to find out more about this crazy black oil, or what's going on with these crows and these feathers, you want to do that. There's not a massive influx of magic or insanity. It's a very small niche within the world that you're operating. And there's a finite. It feels very finite. At least I, I'm trying to make it feel that way. If you're playing a old school forgot realms or as we were joked with the money hall stuff where if you do find through a through a dungeon you find 10 plus one swords six plus two swords and the you know you're looking at you're throwing plus one swords over your shoulder to pick up the plus three when it gets to that point players i think <coughs> excuse me or i at least as a player start like okay what is this just tell me there's so much magic and you almost feel like, look, we're surrounded by this. The world is built this way. Um, some of that, not, it's not even the, the wonder is gone per se, but I don't want to have to, every time I find a you know wheelbarrow full of magic weapons, I don't have to go to every fucking library in the, in the center of Sharn to figure out what all this wheelbarrow full of goodies does. Um, now again, if you're running that kind of high-level magic, then chances are your your mages and other people um, have ways to figure that out for you. But even so, there's, I think that's where players and game masters start to lose the desire to let people figure things out when there's just too much. If there's too much stuff, too many magic items, too much power just kind of laying around in the goblin horde or whatever it is, when there's so much of it, it becomes boring to try to figure out every little bit and piece. You just want to roll a couple dice and that's what we tell you. Yeah, no, I th- sure, absolutely. I think that's a method. They're an approach. Okay, what would you do? What handling you, magic you, items? No, I'm just, I'm just saying. If you if you had if you do you disagree? Is that a bad idea? Where I I guess I'm <clears throat> I'm just saying that when when it's a lot, when there's tons and tons of stuff, yeah, is it, it just feels like it's so much like look, it's a plus one sword. Look, it's a plus two dagger. Look, it's it's a rod of lordly might. Just fucking move on. <laughs> um, it feels like it's just kind of a cast, you know, like you're just kind of chucking stuff. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to play in that game. That's not a, that's not neither, a game. Neither do I. I don't really want to run that game either. It's just not, it's not, it's not my, like, again, I'm not like, it doesn't age well. I'm not 14. That's true. 
I, the the goofiness that was that was what's made that's what made it fun. I just don't think that I would want to run that game anymore. I don't know why. I don't know. It's just if you got a magic item, it's going to be unique. I mean, right now I'm like ninth level. I think Doc's given me like maybe three. And you and you appreciate the hell out of them because you don't have that many. Yeah, I do. Even though they're kind of a more curse than benefit. <laughs> I mean, there's benefits to it, but it's like, you know, I'm casting fireball, and now my character is afraid of fire. Like, oh, lovely. That's yeah, great. but I can cast Kona Cold. Oh, so I got that going for me. Which, yeah, well, right. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you what, though. I mean, the other piece here that this kind of hit me, I think, is the we touched on the bards, right? So. One of the things that is kind of cool is that now in first ed, there were no secondary skills, really. There was no history, knowledge, but you got that in the, um, God, I think in the Dungeon Years uh, Survival Guide, Wilderness Survival Guide, that type of stuff. It started to, to creep in there and in second edition had more and more. But now we have things like Spout Lore from Dungeon World. We have Arcana. And uh, other cool things. Pathfinder's got tons of skills. All, a lot of them, really good games out there. Some really, really good skills and so on. And every player, <clears throat> it used to be always just the the domain of the mage or the cleric to try to figure out what the magic item is, which is why fighters would be like, fine, I put the ring and I jump around. They're trying to do something. Now they're looking at it. And if I was a player as a ranger, I'd be like, oh, I find this this blade. Okay, I'll take a look at it. Does it come from where I know? Is there anything about it? Is it you know a leaf blade? Who makes them like this? I'm asking more intelligent questions. And part of that is because my character, she tells me, my character has this background. My character knows history. My character knows region and ideas and, and all this stuff. So there's a cool thing, I think, that, and I know people have done this for years, so it's not like, oh my God, this is an amazing new, new world gaming here. But letting the players that aren't the magic wielders, letting the players that are, <clears throat> excuse me, the... Uh, uh, the cab driver instead of the librarian figure out what this came from, you know, or w- where this person could have been in Chicago or, or where this weird tapestry happened to come from or whatever it is, because the the cab driver is involved in something. He has a past, he has a history and using all these different skills. There's some really cool ways that, that players can have their characters when they're getting into character, acting and speaking and doing as that character saying, hey, I think I have a shot at figuring out what this is. <clears throat> Excuse me. And it's a really great time for those players to shine where it's um, not just waiting for the librarian to always say something or the mage to always cast identify. The rogue can pick it up and go, I remember, I know this ring. I've seen this ring before. It was on the hand of a master thief. And why not? He has arcana. He has lore. He has some kind of a knowledge that he can use. Does he? I don't know. Some games they don't. Thief doesn't yeah, have that, absolutely. you know, there's fighters don't have that. So it's always the wizard because the wizard's the only one that has that. So yeah, I'm you, saying some, I'm you, some games don't, but right. some do. Then you get into the debate of, oh, I can't do anything because it's not on my sheet. Doesn't say That's I true. can, doesn't say I can climb because I don't have the climb skill. <laughs> like, you know, then yeah. you get to G and the thing is you get a GM that enforces that crap. And it's like, damn, man. Yeah. But you know what, Brett? I yep. joke. I joke. <laughs> I joke yeah. about the train, right? Railroad, yes, woo but, but there are game masters that may not railroad specifically in the true sense of the word, but they do dumb shit like that, right? 
They pigeonhole like classes, and maybe that's kind of what classes are for. That's the argument, right? Why would I play a wizard if I can't have the ability to be smarter than everybody else and understand the magic item or whatever that is? Mm-hmm. So I get that argument, but at the same time, a game master could loosen up a little bit, damn, and just yeah, throw I mean, a bone to a, somebody, right? You've got a dwarven weaponsmith, and then you're telling, I'm sorry, there's no possible way you could identify where this sword was made. That makes no sense. Well, if there, know, there's a tie, that's a little more obvious too. But yeah, but I, I mean, I have seen such a thing where nope, it's a magic item. You have to have a magic. You have to use some kind of magical way to decipher it or understand it. I'm like, uh, yeah. So I mean, I'm not, di- I'm not digging that. I'm getting plenty of hate mail over here for railroading. <laughs> Yet at the same time, you get the- these, you know <laughs> some goofballs and then you know that game master, and they're like, here, you know, here's the box, and this is the way it works, and I don't have any flexibility and. I mean, let's come on, man. Let's get into the cool factors of stuff. Yeah, and that's where, like you said, pigeonholing, that's immediately what came to my mind, too, is that when you have characters that have a chance at figuring something out, giving them uh, a chance to shine. Now, granted, there's a difference between letting the rogue say, I've seen this ring. I saw it. He was on a master thief back in the city. I think that's where I saw this from. And the mage says, let me see that. Then he casts his spell and says, yes, this is a, I could see where you may have seen such a thing before. In fact, this is a ring of, you know, ultimate lock picking. Oh, great. Yeah. Oh, that would make sense. Why someone would have that. Um, then they're combined. Now someone knows a thing, they have a clue. And then the other person says, oh, hang on, let me do more. Let me take my thing and add some, add some more uh, info to, to what we're investigating here. Cause it's basically a miniature investigation at that point. Any and all ideas and input should be welcome. And then you guys sort through it. Yeah, sure. Somebody has a spell or a uh, mechanical device or some high tech, something or other that tells you what it is or what it may be able to do. But until that thing is deployed, letting the other players, characters have a shot at poking around, I think is really cool. It's a great way for everybody feels then a part of something. Instead of just waiting to see, okay, Hyrule gets the plus five sword. No, we don't want to play like that. What we want to do is say, you know, where did the sword come from? What's it connected to? Do would I even want to carry such a thing? It was, you know, worn by a king who was, you know, assassinated. Or this was worn by a traitor or something. Maybe I don't want to hold that blade. You know what I? You know what I think I would do, Brett? What would you do, Sean? I would say that they come across an item, and at the end of the day, they're sitting around the campfire, and what they do is they have to play Baron Munchausen. With each other, right? They have to, see to who gets the. They have to play a game of, of Baron Munchausen. So, if you're not familiar with Baron Munchausen, everybody speaks like a, a, a British Baron Munchausen person, and you they have to pass the item around. So the one that the rogue gets it, and then tells a tale of what the item is and its background and how it came to be in their <laughs> possession, and then. The next person grabs it and says, "That's not what I heard," and then they spin their own tale, and whoever's got the best. Is is the actual truth? There you go. <laughs> Interesting. I think the uh, I like that. Actually, that's, kind that, that's a pretty good idea. That's though. kind of fun. That's yeah. not bad. Sometimes I surprise I, myself. I think the other cool thing that letting the players get involved like that, all the characters get engaged. Then everyone has a vested interest in this item, and it's no longer I want it because it's really powerful. No, granted, you're gonna have players. Um, who who are like that or a character who's like that. There's there's greed, um, supersedes need sometimes. But by n- not just the bard saying, well, I spout lore or 
you know, having the fighter say something or the ranger or the druid or whomever giving information about it, then everybody knows a little bit of something. Everyone has a, a piece of this really cool find that you have. Now, granted, if you've got wheelbarrows worth of it, seems excessive. Um, but the way I, more game masters I talk to, the men and the women that are doing it, they're running it more like you and I are. And when they find this stuff, when people come in, they, you know, spout some lore about this really cool thing. And the thief says a the thing, then the cleric backs him up. And the wizard says, let me see that. And finally cast identify on it. Everybody's part and has a part in finding how incredibly fucking cool this item is. And a thing that was simply a ring of, you know, plus five on your lockpicking roll now became the rings that were worn by master thieves out of Lankmar and da, 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 da. And that would become something that's important. And it's very clearly you'd hand this to the thief and say, yes, you should, you should have this thing or whatever it is. So I think there's, I think there's a lot of cool to that. I think there's something to be said about predicting players and player characters motivations when you play <laughs> and you're a game master. So when you get the dickhead who is going to play greed, yeah, you just make an item where it's like one must be of pure of heart and un- and not greedy. And those that are contrary to that and seek greed has a special effect on them. Well, that was the old, um, alignment based magic items, right? Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You know, sorry. It's, it's lawful, lawful. Good. Your cat, will pick it up, blow your arm off. Right. <laughs> no type of thing. Not good. Cool. Anyway, that's what I had, man. I just want to kind of talk through that a little bit. I, I figured you kind of did it the way I did it, but I was just curious. And I'm also curious as always what the listeners have to say too, because we kind of, we touched on a bunch of different bits and pieces with characters doing different things, um, thrown in part and parcel here. Um, I, there's still some fun in figuring out what the thing is. And I think sometimes rushing to the end isn't necessarily a good idea. Kind of like we talked a little bit with the, with the, uh, the jailbreak starting in prison against episode. Don't remember what episode is start at one work forward. Um, there's some cool stuff in working through that piece of the adventure, identifying the thing, investigating the icky black oil that seems to be corrupting people as opposed to somebody just going, Oh, that's this. Um, there's something really cool about that. So anyway, if you got better ideas or, uh, anything like that, let us know. All right, let's get into die roll two to four miscellaneous points of gaming and geekery. You want to bring your attention. Brett's got three. I've got three. Got a couple from the listeners, Brett. Yes. So there are, I've heard about this before. And, uh, so I saw this, I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. And it always kind of, it's creepy. But there's something, it's always, there's always something gameable, right? So basically, there are over 200 bodies on Mount Everest, and they're used as landmarks. What? It's, um, there's, basically, there's tons of, over 200 people have died in their attempt. And um, depending where you're at, there's like the body of Green Boots. It's an Indian climber who died in 1996, was believed to be a certain person, uh, lies near a cave that all climbers must pass away at the peak. Serves as a waypoint marker that climbers use to gauge how near they are to the summit. So you take that idea and move it into something, expand it. We're talking a little bit of D&D here as, as, as I want. And you say, what would, a, what would dwarven miners do? A rate or elves, something that lasts that long. Mm-hmm. And in the great dwarven city where they be like, you know, perhaps their, their ritual is the dead lie where they lie, especially after a battle. Or you don't take a dwarven miner where he keeled over. You leave him there because otherwise you disrupt his ghost. You walk by 
That's where Iron Boots died pulling the last gem out of this part of the mine. And you just keep going. You know, when you see Iron Boots' corpse or his or his bones or what's left of his Iron Boots, you're only a quarter mile from the entrance. There's something really, again, to that. We just talked about with like the magic item component. There's something flavorful that can come from that from a world perspective. The other one I have is that some astronomers just dug up a 30-ton meteorite in Argentina. I read that and I thought, yeah, nothing bad could happen from this. There's no way that the... Uh, color out of space or any other horrible Lovecraftian evil could happen from this. So yeah, anyway, there's just one more plot idea for your Delta green game. And uh, the last one I have is the blood shadows RPG fantasy noir RPG third edition is out. It's on drive through. I remember blood shadows when it first came out. I never got into it. It's one of those games. And I looked at and went, Oh, that could be interesting, but I never got into it. And uh, it's only 1495, 15 bucks. That's not a bad that's not a bad price. I might have to pick that up. But anyway, I know that there are some gamers out there who have played this type of thing, so I want to call it out. Sean, back to you, sir. All right. Uh first one, Mage Crammer. It's a new <laughs> Mage Crammer? Mage Crammer. Okay. Is a new and exciting role playing game from Druids of the Shore. Not Wizards of the Coast. Druids of the Shore. Druids of the Shore. That fuses the genre of fantasy and science fiction into a new kind of play experience unlike anything else you've ever seen since 1989. This looks a lot. Yeah, basically this is a spell jammer. Yeah, it's it's a weird hack of spell jammer. Yeah. Check it out. Interesting. It's making its rounds. Um, (laughs) I see that. 10 Lessons from Real-Life Revolutions that Fictional Dystopias Ignore. That's on io9. Uh, good gaming stuff there that you may want to check out. Oh, yeah. Those guys. That, that website's always got some cool stuff. Uh, my last one, conceptships.blogspot.com to get your spaceship fix. So if you're running like Traveler, some other science fiction game, and you need some ideas on ships or ship art, uh, check out that link in the show notes. There's some cool ones there. That is some nice looking stuff. Yeah. And we had a couple from our listeners. Uh, Joseph Fitz pointed us about uh, some Ewoks for D&D 5e. Link in the show notes. Oh, is that a character race? <laughs> yeah, it looks like it. So looks like it. D&D 5e. Wait a minute. What? Yeah. Little, uh, Ewoks for D&D? Yeah, looks like it. Little Ewoks for D&D. Is anyway, that, take a take oh, a look yeah. at that. They're Ewoks, man. I just figured our, our little Ewok Wayne, he's been uh, kind of pissing and moaning because we we stopped playing Star Wars. He's a little cranky about that. But now we might actually be able to get him to play some D anD D because he can play an Ewok. I think yeah, I last, think Wayne's recovering. I think he's been he re- yeah he's been recovering his. Uh, he's going through twelve steps. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he's just he's I mean, just look, down to dr- he's just guy. back. He's just down to drinking now. He quit. He he, he quit everything else. Yeah, he's he, yeah. He gave up the blow and meth. Exactly. I'll do that. Uh, Jim Fat Jim Fitzpatrick also pointed us to six tips for side quest design. Some pretty cool stuff. And uh, yeah, I sense a show topic in the making. Probably catch that up in a, uh, about episode one hundred eight or so. So yeah, that's uh, that's something coming. But yeah, thank you to uh, Joseph Fitz, Jim Patrick, and again, thank you to Kevin Lovecraft for calling my attention to this idea about um, magic item discovery and uh, properties and so forth. Um, so yeah, there we go. Well, Anything you, else, Sean? No, 
But uh, the sponsor for the show, GameholeCon.com. Check it oh, out. Yeah. Gaming convention coming to November. If you haven't heard from episode whatever to now. Like episode one till now. <laughs> yeah. We talk about this every year. Yeah. Make sure you go to GameholeCon.com for more information. It's a gaming convention here in Madison, Wisconsin. We'd love to see you there. Brett and I will be in full force along with some of our fellow friends and game masters and friends of the show, community members. And if you Absolutely. can't if you can't make it, we understand. Just put it on the calendar for next year. And if you can't make it next year, put it on the year f- for the year after that. And if you can't make it there, dude, get it done, man. That's what we're going <laughs> to There you go. Brett just said it. Get it done. Like, well, all right then. Well, there we go. Cool. What are we talking about next week, Brett? Next week, we're going to talk about evil games. Um, talking games, about D- games that curse you? No, no, no. About running games when uh, the purpose is being evil or uh, acting evil or that whole, I'm going to run a chaotic evil party type of thing. Oh, we're God. Talk about that. That's going to be a short show. Oh, it's going to be a short show. Sean's answer is fuck that. Chaotic um. evil games. <laughs> Whoever wins the battle between each other wins. <laughs> exactly. Anyway, we're going to talk about evil games. We'll try to put a little finer point on it than what we had here. Um, so, anyway, cool. That's about it, man. Well, excellent. That's all I have to say for this week. Uh, having said that, I'm one of your hosts, Sean. And I'm Brett. Good night, good game and all. Gaming and BS produced with the help from the following patrons. Christian Sexy Voice Serrano, Kevin Lovecraft, Joe Swick, Brett's Biggest Fan, Steve Day, Jeff Rademacher, Boris DeGary, Mark Anthony Benedetti, Bruce Cunnington, Eric Jeppesen, Andy Hall, Misdirected Mark Productions, Sean Nicholson, Tim Jensen, Chris Steele, Old School DM, Knights of the Night Crew, Palladian, Jason the Beard Blaylock, Remy Billado, Jason Hobbs Hobbs, Mirko Froelich, Wayne Lumrunner Humfleet, James Carpio, Not Caprio, Mark Tasaka, Tony Baker, Not So Pure Mongrel, Lord Tentacle, Brett Pazinski, Corey Johnston, Tim Shorts, Eric Tankar, and Brandon Barnes. Consider becoming a patron. For the cost of a coffee shop coffee, you can support the show for an entire month. Whoa.